The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Okay, Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 this morning in your Bibles. More of the instructions of Moses, actually of God through Moses for the people of Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Deuteronomy 26. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there. Now think about who that is speaking of. Few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Now think of that for a moment. From in verse 3, and then in verse, verses 5 through 10, you have a statement which they most certainly would not have you know, written down on a little card to recite. They would have to know it. And they would have to believe it to be effective, I mean, for it to be real. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And notice, too, the content of that. Who, where I came from. Where our nation, who gave us this land? Who gave us the dirt that raised up this fruit, these vegetables, these things that we are giving back to God? They all came from God. Verse 11, So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God 
and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Now, I hope that they can say that truthfully. Knowing that they're going to have to do that would be a great encouragement for them to make sure that they straighten themselves out before they go and do this giving to the Lord and live the right way. Look down now, they ask, from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. There's a confession. Is the Lord your God? And that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments and His judgments and that you will obey His voice. Is that true for us today? 18, also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people just as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made in praise, in name, and in honor that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as He has spoken. Oh, what intentions God had and still has for the nation of Israel. We await that to be fulfilled in the kingdom. But it is not at the moment. So, we wait. I invite you to turn your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, you'll see, I think, a little connection in the messages today, both this morning, earlier, and then now, and then this evening, uh, God willing. Just a single verse of Scripture, in fact, not even a a verse, just a portion of the verse. And uh, the men will know this is familiar because we went over uh, much of this yesterday. I kind of used uh, the fellows as guinea pigs, as it were, to go over this. But I want to think about this again with them and with all of you, with the whole church, because I think it offers us a good deal of encouragement when we properly understand what the Lord Jesus is saying here in Matthew 16 and verse number 18. And this message arose from a question that we had a couple of weeks ago or a little over a week ago in one of our men's prayer uh, sessions in which somebody asked, what does this exactly mean? And I uh, just put it off uh, for later because I hadn't thought about this verse in any great length. And I'll tell you, I learned a couple of good things this week as I studied that I didn't quite realize as clearly as I should have uh, in terms of this text of Scripture. No new truth here, just uh, kind of a a refresh on uh, old truth and uh, to connect it to this text of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 16, in in the chapter, uh, you see the Pharisees and Sadducees begin by asking for a sign from heaven. And uh, Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Uh, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is a kind of a passive thing. I mean, he's saying, I'm, I'm not going to actually do some grand miracle. That's what they're looking for. But he's going to do an even greater miracle in resurrecting from the dead, uh, being three days and nights in the heart of the earth and then rising from the dead. But they didn't get that. And they certainly didn't understand that. And so Jesus says then to the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And their minds are all thinking about when's our next meal, we're hungry kind of thing. And so they 
are thinking leaven of bread, not the leaven of bad doctrine, that, that leaven of bad information, bad truth. Could I say it that way? Which is not true, it's false. <laughs> okay. It's another kind of truth. It's, it's uh, something that some people believe is true, but is not true. And so, he's saying, look, you've got to beware of that. We have to beware of that. Beware of the leaven that enters into your home through the tube, through the computer, through the radio. There's plenty of leaven out there, and uh, we need to be very careful of that. But they were warned by the Lord. And then, Jesus, in coming into Caesarea Philippi, asked the disciples, Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man. I, the Son of Man. And who am I? And they went through the list of possibilities. Elijah and John, and, you know, John the Baptist resurrected and Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Peter answers, giving information revealed to him from heaven that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him in verse 17 now, and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter could not uh, claim uh, superior intellect or spiritual insight, but only the revelation from heaven that God gave to him. And Jesus then says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And playing on words, he says, and on this Petros, on this rock, Peter, you're the rock, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The question that we received was, what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church? We're not going to get caught up in the rock, the Petra, and all this stuff that we can talk about. We've dealt with that before. I believe that this is talking about Jesus speaking to Peter and not saying on Peter the church is built, but on the rock of the confession of Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ. That is the foundational uh, assumption, if you will, the foundational truth of, of the church. But there's this question that then comes right after that, which could be easily overlooked, the gates of of Hades shall not prevail against it. Do these gates represent an offensive weapon that is turned against the church in an attempt to destroy it? What exactly does this phrase mean? Now, I'm going to spend probably quite a bit of time to come to what I think is a very simple conclusion, but I hope one that will be more memorable to you as we kind of develop the thought this morning. First, look at the text very carefully. This, you could just kind of take this as a standalone sentence. If the, the T and the had a capital letter, you could say, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Use that, just look at that as a sentence, a sub-sentence, of course, a clause. But the subject of that is the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades. The uh, Greek text, by the way, uses the word Hades here. Hades. Not Gehenna, not Lake of Fire. It says the Hades, gates. Okay, And I take the Hades, the gates of Hades to be the whole subject. Okay, I'm not going to divide it up and say there's a subject and a prepositional phrase. I know that's the case. But the whole thing is the idea of the subject. Okay. 
um, the verb is prevail against. And it can be translated as overcome or overpower. The Greek dictionary defines it as to have the strength or capability to obtain an advantage or to be dominant or to defeat or to win a victory over. So the gates of Hades will not win a victory over it. I think, though, the dictionary definition is a little weak for this um, context because, remember, I, I said it, it indicates to have a capability or strength to overcome. It's more than... Jesus is indicating more than that. He's not talking about the relative strength. He's saying it will not conquer or defeat regardless of the strength of the gates, these gates, whatever they are, they will not actually defeat the church. doesn't matter if they're stronger, weaker, whatever. They will not prevail. Now, to you, as you think about this, from your own self perspective, you might say to yourself, boy, these gates seem very big. I mean, this, the gates of Hades, I mean, that's big. That's, that's huge. It's, it seems imposing and and, and doomsday kind of stuff looming large in the mind of the believer because I, I'm, I'm not that powerful. I'm not that significant. I'm, I'm weak. Um, you know, or our church. What does our church have against the gates of Hades? Nothing. We're overmatched except that we have a head, the Christ, who has been given all power all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28:18 tells us that. He possesses not only all authority in heaven and on earth, he is he possesses all power there is to possess. He is infinitely powerful. He is the sovereign potentate over all things. Every square millimeter of the universe. Or maybe I should say every cubic millimeter if I can go to three dimensions, okay? or four dimensions, or whatever you want to do. Okay, All power has been given to Him. And so, when He makes this kind of declaration, we don't have to kind of faithlessly look inward or at the little assembly we are or the little collection of churches that are faithful to Christ in our region or our land or our world. Yes, there is a dread foe. And we'll see more about what that is properly in just a moment. So we have the subject, we have the verb, and then we have to look at this uh, object, or in this case it's a pronoun, which specifies what it is that the gates will not prevail against. And that is the church. Will not prevail against it. This is clear from the text. When you read it, you have the church, a feminine noun, you have the feminine pronoun, it, which refers back to the church. So it's the church. It's not an individual church. It's the total church under its head, Jesus Christ. That whole army of people, if I can call it that way, is unconquerable in the long run. Now, what about these gates? What are gates? Well, gates can be, uh, can be referring to doorways or gateways like city gates. And I suppose we kind of think of it like that. You know, we think of Hades as a place with a wall around it and there are gates there, you know, maybe big gates on big hinges with a big bar at the door and that's how you think of it. 
City gates in the Old Testament were the literal place where people came and went. They were also meeting places where elders conducted the business of the city. You might remember Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, became one of the elders. And the people there resented that. He was kind of an outsider who came in and was elevated because God blessed him evidently uh, there, even though he was living in that sinful place. And his righteous soul was vexed. And perhaps he tried to make some inroads into the society and, and encourage them to do right things instead of evil things. Or you remember the uh, famous incident in Ruth, chapter 4, when Boaz goes to the gate to the elders to make an arrangement to take a new bride for himself and to arrange the property transfer that was in the name of the father, uh, the man who had died and they needed an extension of his family line and all of that. That was done in the gate of the city. But this doesn't seem to directly answer our identification of the gates of Hades because Hades is not a city. Uh, you see gates used like this um, in Luke 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 12. You don't have to turn there, but you have a dead man being carried out of the gate of the city of Nain. Jesus encounters that uh, widow with her son who has died and he raises him back to life. There was a fellow begging for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement when they saw that he was healed from his malady, Peter and John healing him. Acts 9.23, uh, Paul has been converted and he's in Damascus and the Jews are like, man, this is terrible. This guy's converted. I mean, he's turned from you know, one political party to the other. We've got to get rid of him. So they're watching the gates every day to see when he's coming out because as soon as he comes out, they're going to snuff him. And so they had to lower him down through the wall in a large basket to escape the city at night. In Hebrews chapter 13, the Bible tells us that Jesus that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. Picturing, as it were, Jesus as a scapegoat. Taking with him the sin of the city outside and paying for it upon that cruel cross for his people, Israel, and for all the Gentiles who come to him by faith as well. Now, other gates are not for cities, but they're for prisons. And uh, there's a number of passages that refer to this kind of setup, but one of them is in Acts 12. Uh, they killed uh, James, the brother of John, with the sword Herod did, and then he put Peter in prison. An angel comes, Acts chapter 12, verse 7, uh, hits him on the side, you know, get up, let's go. He comes, uh, he leads Peter out of the prison. It says in verse 10, when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. And that gate was on an automatic door opener now, and it opened for them, and they exited the city, or the, the prison rather, and went out into the city. Okay? And then the angel left him, and he was, he was on his own. Then Peter goes to uh, the house. And uh, he's standing at the, at the door or the gateway into the house knocking, saying, hey, it's me, let me in. And they don't believe it could be him. I mean, they're praying that it would be him, but then they don't believe it when their prayer is answered. 
that it is him. And so uh, Rhoda, because of her gladness, did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate, the entryway, and uh, they went to see him and rejoice with him. Now, the Lord uses this idea of a gate as a metaphor. I call it a light metaphor. It's very easy to kind of transition from a physical gate to a city or a home to this use of it, like in Matthew 7, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by that way. However, narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. As if to reconsider that same question in Luke 13, one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When, once the ma- when is that? When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Perhaps the most devastating words that ever could be heard. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. It's not a popular way, this way in which we walk as Christians, is it? And so the answer in short, are there few who are going to be saved? Yes, there are few. Only few who will be saved by God's grace. So the, the word, just as we the word gate as we use it, read it in the Bible, is used pretty transparently. It's just what we would think, a doorway protected by a door with a lock of some kind, an entry, a means to keep something out or a mechanism to keep something in. Like, so for a city, why do you close the gates at night? Why do you lock your house at night? (laughs) Keep the bad guys out, right? Keep the bandits out. Keep the thieves out. Why do you close the prison? Well, Everybody in the prison wants to get out of the prison, so you've got to keep them in the prison. And their friends want to bust them out of the prison, so you've got to keep them out. So that's the purpose of the gate and the door. Now, there are two commonly held explanations as to the meaning of the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. The first possibility is, of these two commonly held explanations, is that the figure of gates is a reference to offensive activity. On the surface, this seems strange because gates are kind of you know, inanimate objects. They don't seem to be very offensive. They're, they're designed to keep someone in or keep someone out, but they do that rather passively. If they do their job, they don't move, right? They just sit there. Uh, if they start to move and let a gap open so people can come in or out, then they failed. But could the gates be a a metaphorical reference of demons or people inside the gates coming out in a horde to attack the church? Maybe possible, but hold on to that thought for a second. The reason that this view seems plausible is that the church is constantly under attack. And we like to blame it on something. Hades is as good of a place as any to blame the attacks on the church. Even in such a so-called civilized society as ours, the church is under attack. Don't doubt it, my friends. Don't doubt it. There are authorities out there who hate 
what we're doing this morning. They hate the doctrine we preach. They hate that we, we preach against sin. They hate us. It's terrible. But that's the truth. The other common interpretation is that the gates are a defensive instrument meant to hold people inside like a prison and keep outsiders from going in to take those people out. In this scenario, the gates are holding the residents of Hades but cannot withstand the attack of the church as the church takes the offensive posture. In this view, the church is busy breaking down the gates of Hades in an attempt to release the prisoners from there behind the gates. Or perhaps we just skip the gates and we do an airlift operation. I don't know. Uh, but you see the point. Also, you know, it seems possible and plausible because the Great Commission has given to the church our job, which is, as James says, to save a soul from death. But in fact, the right explanation is not either of these. It's not that Hades is attacking the church or that the church is beating down the doors of hell to get people out of there. Uh, although, you know, by the way, that second view, to, to think of it like we're going to capture people out of Hades, you have to remember something about Hades uh, that we'll see in just a moment. And that view really is expanding the definition of Hades to include all unsaved people. Because the church doesn't go and save dead people. The church goes out to save living people. So is, is, is Hades really the dead plus the living? It just kind of boggles your mind for a second when you think about it. Now, let's be clear too that the text says the gates of Hades. It does not say the gates of hell. Okay, Most people read this as if it says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Why? Because of the, the influence of the King James Version on the English language for four centuries, better than four centuries. And the King James has the gates of hell. But the word is not Gehenna, it's not the lake of fire, it's Hades. Hades. That's why the New King James corrects that. And other translations, modern translations, correct that as well. Okay, it's not the gates of hell, it's not the gates of the lake of fire, but when you read it and you say the gates of hell, then you think immediately the gates of the lake of fire, and you know, you think of you know the, the common idea that, that the devil lives down there in hell and he he's happy in all this flame and, and and he comes out and he attacks the church and 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 the bad demons are down there and they come out and attack the church. And the church, although it's injured from time to time, will ultimately prevail against that attack. That's the idea that comes. But it's not quite right. It's true, however, that the devil and his minions are adversaries of the work of God. But do they come out of hell? As far as I understand, there's no residence in hell right now. Do they come out of Hades? No, the text of Scripture tells us that the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not confined to, to hell or Hades. He doesn't get weekend passes to go out like they used to give some prisoners in jail. What foolishness. 
He is out there looking for things to destroy and to kill and to deceive and people to eat up. We're talking about the gates of Hades, not the gates of hell. They're not the same thing. Um, Who's presently in hell anyway? I already said this, I guess, didn't I? Who, Who is in Hades? Who is in there? Do they get out of there to run campaigns against Jesus? Or does the church attack them as if there are people in there who can be removed? So on that question, I'll just break it down now. What are the, who are the residents of hell right now? There's no one there right now. Okay? The first two residents there are the beast and the false prophet. Revelation 19. Okay? Some, some of uh, you guys uh, studied Revelation this past week. So you know all about this, right? Revelation 19.20. It says, this is when the Lord Jesus returns, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then Satan is thrown into this lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then, verse 14 says of Revelation 20, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hades is thrown in to the lake of fire. Different things, okay? Different things. County jail... The big house. All right? County jail, state pen, or federal pen. Okay? Very similar, but distinguished in the Bible. Okay? The two places are distinguished from one another. But let me ask you this. When somebody gets cast into the lake of fire, do they get out? Can they come out? Can they attack the church? No. So the offensive idea, if this were the gates of of hell, is totally false. Once they're in there, they can't get out of there. What about Hades? Who are the residents there? Most people call Hades and hell interchangeably today, but it's sloppy theology. In the Old Testament, this place, Hades, was called Sheol, the place of the departed dead. And uh, in the Old Testament, believers and unbelievers went to Sheol. That's how they looked at it. It was the grave. They went into the grave, and then we know from a little more in-depth revelation that there was Abraham's bosom, and there was torments. You know, Luke chapter 16 tells us the rich man in torment, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, a great chasm fixed between the two places that we couldn't cross over between them. This guy said, remember the rich man? Uh, send, let me go and tell my brothers or send Lazarus to go. Can't do it. They already have the Bible. The Bible tells them everything they need to know. They don't need to know anything else. They don't believe the law and the prophets. Then they're sunk. Okay? They won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. How do we know that? Jesus did rise from the dead. People still don't believe 2,000 years later. They just want to go their own way. They want to test the waters themselves. They want to die and take their chances. It's an awful strategy because there are no chances. There's certainties only. The Bible's revealed that to us. We know that. We know the Word of God is true. Um, of course, 
the, the mind who is not steeped in Christian theology won't understand that or grasp that, and that's, that's uh, the way that it is. But when people go into Hades, can they get out of there? No, they're stuck. The only time they're, they're going to get out is to stand before the great white throne judgment and then be thrown into the lake of fire. No better. And so it's too terrible to even think about this. But it's the reality. Uh, you can't... The, the, not even the church can go into those places and short-circuit eternal divine punishment. Once they're there, they're there. By the way, this is why the whole idea of, of departed spirits and ghosts and all this stuff is so ridiculous. People who die, their souls go to either heaven, if they're believers, or to Hades, if they're unbelievers, and they don't get out of there. So this whole ghost thing and all of that is demonic. Purely, 100% demonic. Don't be deceived by that stuff at all. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament just for a moment. Go back to Job 17, if you would. And the strategy here of trying to use, of using the Old Testament to understand the New Testament is very, a very helpful strategy because what we're going to find, or what we find is in, in a more uh, broader study of theology, is that the New Testament writers, they, they were Bible men. And their Bible was the Hebrew Bible the, from Genesis to Malachi. They knew it. I mean, if you look at what Paul writes, I mean, he, Old Testament verses in theology spill out of his pen at a rate you can hardly keep up with. I mean, some passages, uh, Hebrews, for example, Romans, for example, you look at those, the, Old, the, the New Testament writer is like, I mean, he's just taking the whole Old Testament and compressing it and, and, and putting it out in summary form. And it just blows your mind how, how smart they were in that Bible. Their thinking was Hebrew theology. It was Jewish theology thinking. And they pick that up and they, they bring it into the New Testament. And so we, we, we look around in the Old Testament for a similar idea and we find one to the gates of Hades. Job 17.15 Where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down? What does your Bible say? to the gates of Sheol. Shall we have rest together in the dust? He's saying, you know, my Job is in a hopeless situation. Okay, If anybody has a right to be depressed, at least for a time, it's Job. He's lost everything. Okay, And, and the devil is against him. Okay, He doesn't know that exactly, but we do. And it's a very, very bad situation. Where's my hope? You know, my hope is going to go to the grave. I'm going to go to the grave. And we're going to be laying there in the coffin together, my hope and me, and, and there will be no hope. We'll be gone. Extinguished. The gates of Sheol here to Job basically means death. Job views death as having an entryway, a gate. Okay? It's like when you think of, the, of a literal valley... When you think of the phrase in Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. All that. You think of that valley. And at the end of the valley, there's a, a gateway, a doorway. 
And when you die, you have to walk through that doorway. Walk through that. You traverse through that doorway. That is the world of the dead as thought of in Old Testament theology. They looked at that like it was a doorway. The gate, the, the Sheol had an entryway. And when I die, that's when I go through that entryway. Now, Hades and Sheol, how are they related? Well, go back to, uh, well, go forward in your Bible to Psalm 16. I want to see if the gates of Sheol can lead us to the gates of Hades here. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That is quoted in the New Testament this way. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Sheol in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Hades, Hades in Greek, are used interchangeably in this context. Showing us that the ideas are very much parallel ideas. The gates of Hades are the gates of Sheol. The realm of the dead is this idea of the gates of Hades. Or more simply, we could just say this. Gates of Hades is death. The gates of Hades are the gates of Sheol, which is where Job was saying, I don't want my hope to go when I go. And it's the same idea. When I go through the gates of Hades, that's like going through the the gates of Sheol. I'm dead. I'm in death. The Messiah would not be left behind these gates of Sheol. He would not be left. He would exit the gates of Sheol. Unheard of. Unheard of that that would be the case. We have Job 38, Psalm 9, Psalm 107, and Isaiah 38 for the gates of Sheol or of death. Even Jonah, when he was in the belly of the fish in in great distress, talked about going down to the very foundation of the mountains and the bars of death were going to hold him, he thought. But of course, he got spit out and rescued from the bars of death from, from the fish as the Lord from the belly of the earth. Now, taken together, we've learned that the gates are not offensive weapons. They're rather holding people out or keeping people in confined. The gates are the gates of Hades, not of hell. No one in Hades or hell is ever allowed to get out and afflict the church, so that offensive view cannot be true. The church cannot go in and battle with those forces to extricate people from those places. And the gates of Hades refers to death itself. So, let's go back to Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 16. And read it with that newfound understanding that the gates of Hades refers to the entryway into the world of the dead or just death itself. And he says this, death, the gates of Hades translates as death. That's the literal meaning of the figure of speech. Death shall not prevail against the church. That death cannot prevail it cannot overpower. 
It cannot overcome. It cannot defeat. It cannot dominate. Have victory over the church. This is where I want you to just park your thinking. Not even death itself can destroy the work of God. Why? Because the church is in Christ and Christ defeated death. Back to Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. Acts chapter 2 verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, I'll start in verse 23 actually. It was delivered by the determined purpose, the determined purpose or foreordained purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God. You took Him by lawless hands and crucified and put Him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Or... Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, which is a verse we're going to explore, Lord willing, a little more tonight and 15. It says, Inasmuch, Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. <clears throat> and Romans 6.9. We're making the case that the church is not subject to death, is not going to be defeated by death because Christ has not been defeated by death and we are in Christ. Romans 6, 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has what? Dominion over Him. The gates of Hades cannot lock Him in. And likewise, the gates of Hades cannot lock you in. Why is that? Because Revelation 1.8 says, of the, of the one who was revealing to John the revelation, the apocalypsis, he says, I am the one who was dead and is alive. I have the keys of death and Hades. He defeated death. He, he, in effect, took the key from the guy who owned the key. In effect, he was like the one who came and spoiled the goods of the strong man who guarded his house and Jesus said, ah, oh, one stronger is coming who's going to take all of his spoil for himself. He has the keys of death and of Hades. By the way, what does it mean, the keys, when he says the keys of that? When you're given the key of something, you have access, you have power, you have authority, you have the right, you have ownership, like you know the keys to the city, symbolically speaking. But you have the you have the ability to enter into that home or that office building or that you know top secret place because you have the key to get in there. This gives you assurance, my friends. Because the church, all true believers are in Christ. What Matthew 16:18 is telling us is that all those enlisted in the Lamb's book of life and are to be saved will in fact be saved. None will be lost. The church will not be destroyed even when faced with the devil's worst tool. Okay, Hebrews said, remember, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil's worst tool. Death itself. 
The church will be extricated from the clutches of Hades and death because Christ has redeemed the church to himself. Believers in Christ are set free from death and Hades. Romans 8.2, not condemned. Uh, death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 just briefly. Let's see this again. This, I'm hoping, gives you great confidence in your faith. Nothing can separate you from God, my friends. The, the gates of Hades wish to enclose you as you die and not let you go. But that cannot happen. That cannot happen to the church or any individual member of the church. 1 Corinthians 15.54 The situation is so, so different now The victory is so complete that listen to what Paul says. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? You will not prevail over the church, death. And Hades who tries to close in the people of God We can have that utter confidence. Nothing that wants to attack the church can proceed to have victory because God has guaranteed it through Jesus Christ. That gives us assurance. It also gives us boldness. We live for Christ. Maybe we have a, you know, there's a serious cost of living for Christ in our particular time or country. But we know that cost cannot become so high that we will be lost. The church will not be destroyed. We can therefore minister boldly for God in every generation. And even in this evil generation, we are certain of ultimate victory. Boldness. Assurance. Think of missionaries who abandon themselves to the cause of Christ. Some missionaries used to go to Africa expecting they would not return. They took their stuff in a coffin so that they could bury themselves there. I mean, other somebody else could, obviously. They weren't coming back. People today abandon themselves to the cause of Christ, even if they face death. They go to nations unfriendly to Christianity. They're bold as lions because of this truth that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Some of them are the reason that we are saved today. People who were not scared to witness for Christ, to be bold in the Gospel. And that's where our next point is, to be witnesses for Him. The church is not doing war against the gates of Hades as some have claimed, a kind of charismatic spiritual warfare emphasis that they have. But there is a truth that comes out of the real meaning of gates. Remember, the gates of Hades is death. Death will not prevail over the church. We are trying to rescue living souls out of death and Hades and eventual hell and bring them to heaven. But Hades doesn't want to give up very easily the people upon whom it has claim. It wants more residence in itself. And so... The sin nature and the sin system and the world doesn't want to give up its own and makes it very difficult for us to witness to them. Uh, 
It has a claim on every human being who is alive outside of Christ. All will go to Hades and hell unless they're rescued. You have to think of people as perilously stuck on the broad way to destruction. They are on a, on a, on a machine, on a conveyor belt, automatically taking them to Hades. And if they don't jump off of that thing, they're going where it's taking them. They're stuck on there. They might even feel like their feet are glued onto that conveyor belt and they have no choice. In in effect, yes, unless God's grace reaches down through the Gospel and plucks them off of that conveyor belt and puts them on the narrow road to salvation. The witness that we need to have with with our fellow humans is to rescue them from this death and be able to tell them, look, you're afraid of death? Death will not have domination over the church. It will have domination over everybody outside of the church, but not us. People are enslaved to death. We'll talk about this tonight, Lord willing. Death can be held over their heads to make them do awful things. Or they just have this philosophy that, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it. So the the outcome of death drives them to a certain kind of life right now. But we have an enormous, enormous power at our disposal, friends. Go back to Matthew 16 just for a moment. The gospel of Christ, the power of God to salvation, in it, with it, we can tell people, you too can be free from eternal death. This power is what Jesus speaks of in the very next verse in our passage. Look at verse 19. Death shall not prevail against the church, the gates of Hades, And I will give you the keys, does it sound familiar? Of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I know the keys in Revelation are keys of Hades and death. Okay, but then you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We understand that. But Jesus is talking about the power that we have to loose or to bind. Have you ever understood what that means? When we proclaim the gospel of Christ and someone is saved, we are loosing someone who is bound. They were bound on the road to Hades. They were bound under sin. If they refuse, then we must declare that they cannot be loosed any other way. And we, in effect, we bind them. We, we make that declaration. And forever and ultimately their residence will be Hades and then hell itself. Uh, A parallel passage to this, by the way, is in John chapter 20 and verse 23. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Loosed, bound. Forgiven, retained. Parallel ideas. Okay. In other words, Jesus is the key owner. He has all the keys. And He allows us to use them. In other words, the key manager has given you a copy of the key, if you will, the Gospel. He who has the power over death, he is the new master of death and Satan cannot claim that title anymore. Our our witness, our job is to rescue lost sinners from Hades and eternal punishment, to rescue people from death, which is the fate suffered by all humanity. We can do that with assurance. We can do it with boldness. 
And we can be a witness because death will not have mastery over the church. No one can stop us from rescuing God's people. You understand that? No secular authorities, no atheists, no evolutionists, no scientists, no other haters of God. Not even Hades itself with its claim that it wants all humans for itself can stop us from proclaiming the gospel and seeing people to be saved because he has the keys of Hades and death and he has all power. We can go forth confidently in the power of the gospel and preaching it. Not only will we be able to win some who are presently on the road of destruction, but we ourselves will not be destroyed by death in Hades. Hades will not be able to swallow us up like it has swallowed up so many in human history. Death could not hold Christ and it cannot hold us. So we don't have to be petrified of dying, of losing our earthly life or thinking this is all there is to it. This is just the the beginning the beginning of an infinitely lengthy eternal life that God has promised to His people. Hard to imagine, but we know it's true because God has put what in our hearts? Solomon says He's placed eternity in our hearts. We know that there's something beyond this life. We know that this is not it. We know that our souls are something more than just matter, than atoms bumping into each other and having you know, chemical reactions. That's not what we are. Now, remember, the text is not about the strength of Hades. It's not about the residence inside of those gates. The point is that the church cannot be defeated by death. It's ultimately invincible because Christ is our head. Like the nation of Israel, God promised they would never expire. Same with the church. The church cannot be defeated or destroyed. Communists may attempt to destroy it, Human governments, persecutors, secularists, atheists, even Satan himself and all of his demons working for the Hades dominion, the kingdom of darkness, none of them will be able to destroy the church. Not even death itself, the most potent enemy. Their efforts are in vain because Christ has promised the gates of Hades will never prevail against the church. Death will destroy those who come against the church, but death will not destroy the church. Okay? Boil it right down to this. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church means death will not overcome the church. Death cannot conquer it. Here and now, the church will win some out of the broad way that leads to death and give them the same assurance and boldness and witness that we possess. And in the future, we will have victory over death. So it applies to us today. It applies to us in the future. It most certainly applies to us in the midst of a pandemic where everybody's afraid of death. We are not. We're not foolish either because life is a gift from God, isn't it? But we're not petrified. We know that death cannot stop the march of the church of Jesus Christ. It will continue until the rapture and God's program for it is complete. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for the confidence, the assurance, the boldness, the kind of strength that this gives us to know about the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, the bars of death itself. 
cannot hold us in, cannot defeat the church, cannot destroy the work of God. I pray, Lord, that You will help us to go forth in that confidence, not in a kind of arrogant manner by any means, but in humble thanksgiving and joy that we have a salvation unlike any other offered by the religions of the world. This is the salvation offered from heaven itself. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.